Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Welcome to the September episode, listeners. I'm news editor Ezzie Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, we'll be talking to Emily Cannon from KU Leuven University about her research on the star Betelgeuse and telling you our top stargazing tip to see in this month's night sky. But for now, we're going to take a look at what we found out while putting together the September edition of the magazine. And in this issue, we took a look at the life and death of stars. There's a fantastic feature in the September issue where Stuart Atkinson talks about the the life and death of stars and interestingly also how you can actually see some of these processes for yourself how you can actually observe different um stages of of stellar life in the night sky um but i suppose before we kind of talk about um, the life and death of stars it's worth talking about how they're actually um born so Mm -hmm. they they form from clouds of dust and gas in regions of space called stellar nurseries and this um, gas and dust begins to coalesce, sort of forms pockets, you know, through through gravity, um, and continues co- coalescing and growing bigger until it reaches a, a mass that's sufficient enough for it to collapse under its own gravity. And this material then begins to heat up uh, and forms a hot core called a protostar. And this um, coalescence continues happening, and eventually a star is born. Um, and and often, the, I, mean, I think one of the really interesting things about stellar birth is that often there's that you know, um, disc of dust and gas um, 
left orbiting around it, known as a protoplanetary disk. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the gas within that can, can coalesce and form rocky bodies, which will eventually grow to form planets around a star like our own solar system. Mm-hmm. And because, of course, as most people will know, at the centre of our solar system is the sun, which is a star. And that's where my explanation of uh, uh, stellar life and um, death begins, because our sun is a main sequence star. Um, and stars like it take about 50 million years to properly mature from that initial collapse to becoming a fully-fledged star. Um, our sun formed about four and a half billion years ago, and it's probably going to survive for another four and a half billion or five billion years. Um, but yeah, it, it seems to be, I mean, generally speaking, the more the more massive a star, the, the shorter its lifespan. It seems to be that the, the more massive stars um, have, I, I guess they kind of burn burn more ferociously and therefore... Don't 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 live as long and, and have more spectacular deaths at the end of their life. It's it's all to do with how much uh, mass they have because the more mass a star has, the more gravity there is pulling everything in towards the center. And if you squidge everything up a bit more, um, then those reactions are are much more likely to happen because everything's just so much closer in. Um, everything burns a bit faster, and that's why bigger stars tend to have shorter lifetimes lifespans. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, um, what you're talking about there, that kind of uh, burning and using up energy, it's really, it's uh, nuclear fusion of, of hydrogen to, to form helium. Um, and, and that's really interesting because that it, it's that energy outflow that, that prevents the star from sort of collapsing under its own weight, isn't it? Or under, mm. under its own mass, because these, these um, objects are so massive that they're kind of, they want to collapse under themselves, but that energy outflow prevents that from happening. Um, yeah, it, so it's a very delicate balance between the two. Um, there's all kind of like, when you really get into like the science and the maths behind it, it's, there's some really complicated, like balancing act going on there. Yeah. I mean, it it almost kind of sounds too, too perfect. Are are, are there situations in which that energy outflow isn't sufficient enough and and the star just never, never really takes off? It it never gets going because it, because it doesn't have the energy outflow to, to, to counter that? Yes. Uh, that's, that's how you get brown dwarfs, um, we think. (laughs) um so brown dwarfs are stars that never quite got there um and they are big balls of gas uh i think they're about um a tenth of the size of our sun around about that sort of size um and they're never quite big enough to to start burning their fuel um to to kickstart those reactions um and so they just sort of sit around being dim and dark and we think there's lots of them throughout the the galaxy but they're quite hard to find because they're dim and dark ah. <laughs> uh but people look for them in the infrared quite i think is the the biggest way that you look for them so you look for their their heat signature rather than their light okay yeah um but i mean once once a star does does get going and um, i mean sequence star like our sun it's 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 pretty pretty intense i mean i was i was reading that um uh, every every second our sun converts 600 million tons of hydrogen into 4 million tons of energy and i suppose like as as stupendous as that sounds you you can see that eventually over time that that fuel's going to run out and so, mm-hmm. and so what will happen is there won't be that energy outflow to prevent it from collapsing in on itself because it doesn't have you know the energy left so that that happens, and the core gets starts getting hotter, and the hydrogen gets used used up. But there's still hydrogen present out, out just beyond the core, so the fusion still continues just beyond the core. Um, but the but the energy is still pushing out the the outer layers um, of the star, and this is 
one of the, um, I suppose, main um, parts of the the aging process of a sun of a star like our like our sun, where it expands to become a red giant. Um, and apparently these can actually grow up to to be like a, a thousand times the size of our sun, like red giants. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the as the surface begins to expand, it cools, um, so it, it 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 glows in the in the redder part of the spectrum, which is called which is why they're called red giants. Um, and it's interesting to think about the, the fact that that will actually happen to our sun one day, because um, the the current theories suggests that as our sun expands outwards and goes through that red giant phase, it's actually going to engulf. Um, Mercury and Venus, the mm. inner planets, um, yeah. but it, it it seems to be the case that it can't be said for definite whether or not it's actually going to engulf Earth. I mean, I, I'd read somewhere that um, the fact that it's going to continue losing mass means that it, it might not actually reach Earth. It was it was one of those things when I did my undergraduate degree several years ago um, <laughs> uh, that. Everybody just said it's like, oh, yes, it'll engulf Earth. But I think the sort of wisdom since then has sort of changed and they think, oh, there might actually be some other factors here so that won't get there. Um, However, it's basically thought that it will expand somewhere between about Earth orbit and Mars. Um, Whatever happens, though, it's probably going to make Earth a rather unpleasant place to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, presumably it'll just destroy absolutely everything like seas will boil and yeah it'll basically the the goldilocks zone which is the uh, area around a star where liquid water can persist on a planet's surface um that will get moved out (laughs) and away (laughs) from earth and all our seas will boil and (laughs) it'll be a very unpleasant time (laughs) probably don't want to be there when that happens (laughs) And I suppose that um, the, the fact that the sun is going to be losing mass as well. I mean, is, is there? I, I was reading that, that that there's a theory that um, some of the planets, the outer planets, might start drifting outwards because they're the sun loses its gravitational pull, which I think is an interesting ah, concept. Yeah, um, I, it, just, it wouldn't be the first time the planets have shuffled around. Um, yeah, they did that exactly. at the very beginning, but it's it's all a balancing act of gravity. You change <laughs> one thing, and everything else changes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, what, what, what will then happen is the uh, core continues heating up uh, and eventually it ignites he- helium, which starts burning at a, at a kind of more controlled rate. But then as the helium is used up, um, it expands into a second red giant phase and it keeps on ejecting its outer layers until um, it forms something known as a planetary nebula, which people will probably have seen. There's lots of, lots of beautiful images of planetary nebulae by um, the... ESO, uh, Very Large Telescope, and Hubble Space Telescope. And they're, they're so called because they're puffed up and round because it's a star ejecting its outer layers. They're not actually anything to do with planets. Um, and yeah, eventually a, a dead stellar remnant is left known as a white dwarf. Um, and this is the fate that probably faces stars up to about 1.4 times the mass of our sun. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting thing. I mean, uh, we've spoken about this before, but um, the idea that if if a star like our sun happened to be in a binary system, that that, that white dwarf could then start um, basically you know, gravitationally sucking material from its companion star and that there might be like a, yeah. a massive explosion um, as a result. It'll, it'll kind of brighten up. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's second skin underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hi, I'm Dan founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That's that's quite a common thing that happens. Um, well, I say common. Uh, it's a, it's a thing that happens um, that we've seen, which is when you get two stars in a system, they um, can end up swapping uh, material between the two of them, especially when one of them is in, say, a red giant phase. So it's much bigger. Uh, it hasn't got as as strong a gravitational hold on all of that gas that's around the outside. And so it tends to just, you know, decide to go to the other one. Um, that looks like a much nicer place to live. I'm going to go live over there. Uh, and again, upsets the gravitational balance and everything <laughs> goes to pot. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's not how uh, type 1A supernovae occur. It is. Uh, so as we'll get onto in a minute, type 1A uh, are a type of supernova. Um, and that happens when... Uh, a white dwarf steals a bunch of uh, gas from the outside of a red giant until it reaches a a critical mass. Um, And when that critical mass is reached, um, it goes supernova. So what is a supernova? Um, This is what happens to larger stars. So stars that are above about 1.4 solar masses. Um, And that's the critical point at where things start to go slightly different when you reach the end of their lifetime. What happens um, is over time, a star starts burning up all of its fuel um, and eventually it'll reach the point where at the the very core, um, it doesn't have enough fuel. It's not readily doing enough of those, those reactions to push out against the force of gravity trying to collapse it down. And when that happens... The, the core begins to shrink. Um, it gets much closer and much denser. And if it's over 1.4 solar masses, what happens is it gets so dense and it crushes itself down so much um, that the atoms overcome something called electron degeneracy pressure. So that's a very complicated term. What does that mean? Uh, it basically states, like, electron degeneracy means electrons don't like to be at the same place at the same time. So you've got all of these atoms with a cloud of electrons around them, 
and those electrons don't want to be in the same place at the same time, which kind of keeps the atoms apart. Then you reach the certain point where everything is being forced in so much, they're being squeezed so hard that the electrons can't hold the atoms apart anymore and they squish together. That basically causes all of the atoms that were in the core to really squish down and form this absolutely hugely dense ball. It's essentially one giant atomic nucleus. Um, and when that happens, uh, it suddenly creates this, this solid ball at the, bo- the centre of a star that's trying to collapse down in on itself because of gravity. And what happens is all of that gas on the outside of the star that's rushing in smashes against this solid ball bounces out and that's an explosion that we call a supernova um and when all this gas dissipates you end up with that very solid core that you had at the the middle um and that's if the sun is uh, the star is about 1.5 to 20 times the mass of the sun um then that giant nucleus just stays as it is it's uh what we call a neutron star Um, And this is, you know, has all of that mass of the star initially crammed down into a space that's about 30 kilometers across. (laughs) Um, So when I say that these are being squished down, I mean, they're really being squished down to overcome that. (laughs) However, there is another thing that happens uh, if the star is even bigger, if it's the like really, really big stars over about 20 solar masses, um, then those atoms in the core are smushed together even harder and what that means is they overcome something called neutron degeneracy pressure and that's basically it's the same thing with atoms except it means that neutrons so those 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 particles at the very core of an atom don't like being in the same place as each other but if you squeeze them down hard enough they will overlap and cross into the and 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 all smush together um smush being the technical term um and when that happens you end up with a black hole um and i'm gonna be honest what happens inside of a black hole when those neutrons cross over each other exactly what's going on and what's happening there is incredibly complicated physics goes a bit strange um (laughs) which is one of the reasons why black holes are such a like mysterious object when it comes to astronomy but that is essentially what happens to your larger stars when they reach the end of their life (laughs) (laughs) i mean essentially those those black holes are it's it's that the object is is so dense yeah that it's escape, it's escape velocity is such that not even light can escape? Yes. So escape velocity is like how fast something needs to be going away from it to be able to escape its gravitational pull and go off into the universe. And black holes, um, th- there's a certain point within which there is the, the escape velocity is essentially infinity. You can't go fast enough to escape it. Um, and so everything, even light gets trapped within this event horizon. They're interesting objects. Um, and I suppose one of the um, most famous of the sort of red stars that you can see in the night sky is uh, Betelgeuse, which brings us nicely onto uh, this episode's interview. <laughs> yes. So one of the ways that if you do want to see a star that is approaching the end of its life, um, I say approaching the end of this life, uh, this is astronomy, so it's any time between now and about 100,000 years from now. Um <laughs> then you can take a look at the star Betelgeuse. Um, 
sometimes called Betelgeist. It's one of the stars in Orion. It's a red giant, and it's been doing some interesting things over the last year or so. And to talk more about that, uh, I spoke to Emily Cannon from KU Leuven University about her research into the star Betelgeuse. So, uh, Emily, what is so special about Betelgeuse? So Betelgeuse, being a red supergiant, makes it among the largest stars in the universe. For some scale, if you replaced our sun with Betelgeuse, it would go all the way past the orbit of Jupiter. So red supergiants, they have a powerful mass loss. So that means they're throwing a lot of material out into space. And this material is what um, is the building blocks for everything else in our universe. So not only do they um, lose mass through their winds, they also explode as supernova at the end of their lives. Um, so what's particularly interesting about Betelgeuse is we don't think it's that different to any other red supergiant, but just because of its size and its proximity to Earth, we're able to study it in much more detail. And what happened that was interesting with the star last year? So last year, the star had an unprecedented dimming. So Red supergiants, um, their light is variable, so we see them um, go up and down in brightness. But um, last year, on the 7th of December, there was an astronomer's telegram saying that Betelgeuse was dimming beyond what was normal. Um, so at the start, people were thinking, oh, maybe it's just a particularly low minima, um, but it continued to dim. So within two weeks of the astronomer's telegram, um, our team, led by uh, Miguel, um, submitted a proposal to the very large telescope, the VLT, in Chile, um, to observe Betelgeuse. And this is where it's important that Betelgeuse, because of its proximity to us and because of the amazing facilities at the VLT, we can look at Betelgeuse not as a point source, but we can actually see its surface. Um, so we applied to get time on the telescope to observe it, and we got that, which was amazing. Um, so we got some images of Betelgeuse in January, Fe January, February and March. And by mid-February, the brightness of the star was decreased by a factor of three. So it was very visible. So if you looked up at, this, um, looked up at Betelgeuse just in the sky with your eye, you were able to see that it was visibly dimmer. So when we looked at our observations, we could see that the surface of the star, while dimmer, wasn't uniformly dimmer. We could see that the southern part of the star had looked like something was blocking the light, while we still had some brighter parts up in the north. So that's what we've been working on, figuring out what is happening here. And you said it was first announced there on uh, the Astronomer's Telegram, which is a uh, service that, that highlights any transient events like supernovas and so on. Um, but who was it that actually first noticed the fact that um, Betelgeuse was getting so dim? So Betelgeuse is constantly monitored, and a lot of this monitoring is done by um, amateur astronomers, um, and it's incredibly useful. So we can go on go online and look up any star, any of the variable stars, and we can see um, people can submit their readings from different days, and, and also they are checked. And you can see the light curve. So we could see, like, day by day, the difference in uh, Betelgeuse's brightness, and that's where people started to notice that it was going down. And... Over the, the, the several months, exactly how long was it dimming for? So the dimming was first noticed in around December and its dimmest was in February. And so after mid-February, it's starting to brighten again. Um, but we can't, we can't see Betelgeuse um, because it's too close to the sun from mid-May to early August. Mm. Um, so we couldn't 
continue to monitor getting brighter. Mm. Um, but another team have actually done something really incredible that I thought I might mention. Um, that um, one of the solar satellites, um, Stereo A, that orbits around the sun, what they did was they rolled it so it was pointing away from the sun and they observed Betelgeuse with that satellite, um, which was amazing. I did not even think it was possible. <laughs> um, so while we had expected the star to still be getting brighter, and uh, they actually noticed that from our last... Um, our last observations from the ground in around May, that the star had actually gotten slightly dimmer again. Um, so it'll be very interesting to start up observations again now that we can observe it from the ground again. And uh, when when will it come back into view? So it should be coming back into view soon, so this month. Mm, um, uh, this month being August, by the way, for our listeners. Over that time, how much did it dim by? Um, how much dimmer was it in February than it was for, for most of the time? So it was a factor of three dimmer, so a considerable amount. Yeah, that, that's quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and do you have any ideas uh, at the moment about what might have caused this change in Betelgeuse? Yeah, so there's a lot of discussion about this. Um, actually, at the, at the start, before we'd done these sort of observations, all the media was reporting that maybe this was um, a sign that Betelgeuse was about to go supernova. Um, that's not what we think, though. Um, so we wouldn't really expect to see a change of brightness on, on the surface of the star if, as a sign that it's going to go supernova, because the final chemical reactions that would happen in the core of the star, the light from those would not reach the surface before the star explodes. So you wouldn't really expect to see a surface change. So what we've been exploring is two different possibilities. One, that a clump of dust may have been ejected in our direction, um, which wouldn't be unlikely as we've studied other red supergiants and we've seen um, Betelgeuse's outer wind and we see a lot of um, big dust clumps. Or that the temperature of part of the star is cooler than the rest of the star. Mm-hmm. And um, what does this tell us about uh, Betelgeuse and other stars like it? So the interesting thing about red supergiants is we don't actually know everything about them yet. So there's a lot of unknowns at red supergiants. And one of them is how the mass loss is triggered. So what is sending all this material out? So we can see that there's winds and we can see the winds are moving away from the star, but what's pushing this material out? Um, And there's lots of different theories that it could be the convective cells on the surface. So these are big kind of bubbles on the surface of the star. So the sun has convective cells, but on red supergiants, the whole star might have... 10 convective cells covering its surface at any one time. Um, So there's theories that maybe these convective cells have something to do with pushing the mass loss. Um, So observations of the surface and these sort of events are very important to learn more about those convective cells and possibly if there's dust in the environment as well. So the eventual fate of Betelgeuse, as you mentioned there, is that we think it's going to go um, supernova. When is that likely to happen or when do you think that will happen? Oh, it's very, very difficult to predict because, as I said, we don't know a lot about red supergiants, which is what makes all of these observations so interesting because we gain a lot of insight. Um, I know speculation is within the next 100,000 years. <laughs> so could be could be next week, could be in yeah. 100,000 years. <laughs> so it's astronomy terms, when soon is any time between now and <laughs> uh, several thousand years from now. Um, yeah. And uh, why is it important... Uh, to study stars like Betelgeuse? 
So there's only a handful of stars that we can study in such detail as Betelgeuse because, as I said, they're, it's incredibly large and quite close to the Earth that we're actually able to see details on the surface of a star, which is pretty amazing as most stars to us are just point sources. So, and especially in terms of red supergiants, so Betelgeuse can be resolved and then also another red supergiant, Antares. Um, but there's not a lot other, of other stars that we can do these type of observations on. We can do a lot of other types of useful observations on other red supergiants, but in this detail, there's only a couple. And for you personally, why do you find um, studying things like red supergiants so fascinating? I think I like the scale of the red supergiants, like the fact that some people might work with a, a a sample of a thousand stars and do some really interesting work on this. And I know that I'm looking at one or two stars, but like you're seeing such details in these stars. And also there's so many unknowns, which sometimes can drive you a little bit crazy. Um, but also there's so much to do then and there's so much to discuss. So you're getting to know a couple of stars very, very well, as opposed to, to everything. Um, yeah, in the hopes that these couple of stars will help us know more about this, uh, the population in general of Red Supergiant. Well, hopefully over the next uh, couple of months and maybe even years, you'll get to know uh, Betelgeuse uh, a lot better. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. That was Emily Cannon from KU Leuven. To find out more about the life and death of stars like Betelgeuse, make sure you pick up this month's copy of BBC Sky at Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky over the summer months, but I wonder how many of us still take time to look up at the moon. There are going to be some great lunar sights this month. On the 5th of September, see if you can spot the moon sitting close to Mars. Both will rise above the eastern horizon around 9.30pm BST. And on the 14th of September, it's the turn of Venus to join a waning crescent moon, and both will be seen close to the east-northeast horizon at around 4am BST. On the 16th of September, a very thin crescent moon will rise above the east-northeast horizon at around 5.15am BST. If you can see it, you'll be looking at a 2% crescent. And for all the regular lunar observers out there, the 25th of September will provide a great opportunity to see the clair-obscure effect known as the Eyes of Clavius at 10pm. The crater Clavius will be in darkness, apart from the rims of two craters lying within, creating the spooky effect of a pair of eyes peering out from the lunar surface. For more guides to the science of the moon and how to observe it, visit www.skyatnightmagazine.com forward slash the dash moon. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about the life and death of stars in the September issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take a look at Mars as it appears to move backwards across the sky. Use binoculars to take a tour of the winter star formations and take a look at the latest research surrounding mysterious dark energy. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.